you're listening to Tripods Cast. Episode 6B, the television adaptation series 2. Welcome back to Tripods Cast. This episode, we will be continuing our discussion of series 2 of the BBC television series. This is part two of a two-part episode, so if you haven't already listened to the first part, we recommend you go back and listen to... Oh, you know, put it I've... on shuffle, but yeah, I yeah. mean, it won't make sense. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not telling you how to live your life. D- does no. it make sense the right way around anyway? <laughs> we, um, we completely forgot to mention the realisation of the Masters. Um, mm. They didn't look like Danny's drawing. Um, Which annoys me, because my oh. drawing was superb, thank you. And... Uh, it's 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 a very good attempt to make a non-humanoid alien. Um, I think they were puppeteers on on a stand, and I think they could walk, couldn't they? They could definitely move the front legs. Yeah, they can move the front legs. I can't, leg, I can't remember if it it, it it does. Will's master moves towards him, doesn't it? So they kind of shuffly. Yeah, so they could move, and obviously they're not quite the matching the description in the book. But they, they look very effective. Yeah, they tower cool. over the humans for an actual projection for the glowing eyes and veins in her body. Mm. That was a it nice was, touch. They I don't like look... the I like the eye as well. Yeah, it was quite unique, I guess, in an attempt to make a non-humanoid alien because that's quite rare. Oh, oh, oh yeah, like like sort of like the giant bug-eyed giant mm. bug-eyed and, and head mm. or, or the grey image. You know what the grey? Do you know what the grey image means, Dan? No, I've no she idea. She doesn't know what you're okay. on about, Dan. The, the, the sort of small, childlike body, big head, big, Paul. big, like, slitty eyes. Like, yeah, Paul. Like, like the oh. film Paul. She knows Paul. Oh, great, yeah. So that's the traditional grey alien image. Yeah. What UFO conspiracy nuts think yeah. an alien looks like? Weirdly, though, I think of them as green men, but okay. Well, mm. Paul's kind green. of white, isn't he? Kind of off-white. It's like a silver. Mm. Well, they can be silver or grey. Well, I mean, silver's get... just a metallic grey. But but you know, grey is the the nickname that they're mm. they're given for that type. Sectoids. Oh yeah, from UFO. Yep, sectoids. great game. So let's move on for a bit, and we'll now listen to Richard Bates, who was of course the producer of the Tripods TV series. The most important job in television drama is the script editor. And you know that I was the script editor on The Avengers. And in those days, production was quite simple. We never went out of the studio. Uh, a producer's job was very easy because if the script editor handed him a decent script, all he had to do was hand it to the director and say, get on with that. Yeah. Uh, and it was the script editor and the writer who'd sweated blood yeah you know, 24 hours of the day to try and come up with a good story and a good script. So I've always been a script editor. I've always been my own script editor. All the years I was a producer, I still acted as script editor because the script, I always liken it to an architect's plan for a house. You know, Mm -hmm. if you've got a good good plan for a house, you can give it to a builder and say, build me that. And, and you'll get a good house. So the script is everything. It's very important. We'll dictate how much the program is going to cost, how long it'll take to shoot. Can you afford everything that uh, the script demands? So it's very important that you have that experience of working with writers that you can say, that's a lovely idea. It yeah. would be great if we could uh, all go to South America and, you know, shoot <laughs> The third book is uh, set on the peninsula, isn't it, between 
North that's and South America. Now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. If, if, only, if only, yes, we could all go there. It'd be wonderful. <laughs> Unfortunately, we can't. So you have to be there to say, no, that's a great idea, but no, we can't do that. We'll have to think, think of something else. So you yeah. have that responsibility to, on the one hand, be as faithful as possible to the demands of the of the book and at the same time be practical and say no we can't afford to do that was it the writers then who made those decisions to uh, changes for the tv version from the book like introducing the black guards we did it together i don't know who came up <clears throat> with various suggestions but i mean we always worked together we outlined what it was we thought we should use and then thought, well, okay, we've got to get around that problem. What can we do? And so the Black Guards then became a very useful way of maintaining a threat. A cheaper threat. A cheaper yeah. threat when I couldn't have all the, uh, the as much of the tripods as I would li uh, like to have had. So they became a sort of tripod substitute. It was effective because uh, my mm. sister, Danny, who's doing this podcast with us, she was born in the 90s and this is her first time watching the series and she's loving uh, it. Oh, right, and, good. And definitely picked up on, yeah, the black guards giving that extra tension. You know, literally the tripods are a looming menace. And yes. of course, the TV series can't always show that. I'll just tell you, there's one shot when, it must, is it, it must be in episode one, when the tripod is standing over the pond... Mm. And the, I mean, you see the whole tripod and you can see the people dancing on the banks of the pond and the arm comes down. You start to see the arm come down. That mm. shot, which has the arm moving and the tripod model superimposed on the location shot of the people dancing, that took a whole day to line up in the BBC studio. Wow. And, make, and make it look, and balance the colours and everything and make it look real. It took an in one entire day just to get that shot. Wow. If you'll excuse the pun, I still think that shot stands up today. Yeah, yeah I think it does. I, I mean, mm. when I went, it was the first time we were in the... We were actually, the only studio that was available was a strictly come dancing studio, Studio <laughs> One. So, I mean, I mean, you could have, you know, parked the Queen Mary in the studio and not notice her. So we had this small table with this model of the tripod on it. And um, it was such a technical setup. I've never seen so many wires in my life. The special effects designer, Robin, said to me, Richard, Richard I think the best thing you can do is go away for the day. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, come back at tea time. So I did. And I went back at tea time just in time to see them say, yeah, I think we can record that now. And that was fantastic. But I mean, that was how slow progress was. And of course, the other big problem was we were still on analog. Yeah. None of this was digital. And so we could only do one generation from the master tape. We could only go down one generation. Otherwise, the picture started to look crappy. Much as we would like to have done much more sophisticated things, technically the picture would have degraded so much it, mm. it would have been self-defeating. There's only one other great shot, which no, nobody thought was a great shot at the time. <laughs> when the boys are in school and the tripod leaves and the boys, oh, yeah. I think they go to the window to watch it leave. Yes. And it walks away, 
and it walks away and it walks behind a tree. That was another shot that took a whole day. Wow. Because you have to outline the tree and then remove it from the main picture. Mm. And then you put in the model, you record the model of the tripod walking away. So you amalgamate those two original pieces of video. Then you stick the tree back in on top of the video. I mean, if you know, I mean, it's a fantastic shot. The trouble was senior people at the BBC looked at it and, and didn't understand what it was. I mean, they just thought, oh, we had a tripod, which we had on location, and it walked behind a tree. I mean, this was part of the problem that it, it was expensive to do, and I did occasionally exceed my, my sort of episode budget, and most people just didn't appreciate what it was we were doing. We were breaking new ground and uh, not getting much thanks for doing so. That that shot as well, tripod's reflected on the window, isn't it, of the schoolroom? Yes, that's right. So that's just a model. Yeah, very have well you, done. Have you seen the models? Uh, I don't we've seen whether... photos of them, yes. Yes, I mean, some of them are quite big. Yeah, um, of course, you, know, you one... had the 30 feet tall legs as well. What, and we had the legs. three legs built. You had three legs built. And then it was a question of bringing all of that together to make it do what we wanted it to do. So it, it was quite difficult. I mean, it was physically out on location with those big legs, getting those right. Was, yeah. was always difficult. There's some interesting stories there from Richard. I quite like the story about them having to film a, a model scene using a tiny little table, and it's just in a massive Strictly Come Dancing studio. Yeah. Uh, as he said, the, the video studio wasn't ready, so they had to use whatever studio space was available. And unfortunately, it was like the biggest studio available, and they only needed a little bit of it, but they still had to allocate their budget to mm. hire the full studio. It was worth a shot, but I'm sure it must have added towards the series overrunning its budget, or at least appearing to. Yeah. Through through no fault of Richard's, it was just a matter of resources at the BBC. Mm. One interesting thing is... I've always been one for reading the credits on film and television, yeah. which I know Danny doesn't like to do. Weirdo. But I'd always sort of noticed, but never taken it in, that there's nobody credited a script editor on the tripods. And and now I know Richard did his own script editing. In mm. a similar way to Terence Studley, who was producer of Survivors and Doom Watch, like Richard, he was a producer who came from a script writing uh, background, yeah. so he did it himself. I wonder what happened to the models, because uh, I know some of the costumes and stuff ended up in private hands, but I don't know about the models. Um, one was auctioned recently-ish, uh, I believe. Uh, I saw that online. I think there's a few around that are owned by fans. That always makes me sad, because it's like with Doctor Who and, and now Star Trek, a lot of the props have just ended up all in private hands, so they can't be seen anymore. They can't be exhibited. no. Uh, unless but, you have you know, like the Museum of Classic Sci-Fi, where the curator of the museum buys stuff himself, or fans lend it to him. Yeah, but that's all museum, isn't it? Mm. All museums buy it privately, but then they decide to show it publicly. Yeah, it's sad that so many of these things are just in people's private collections that they're never yeah. going to show. So the only thing of the tripods on public displays will costume from the city yeah. in series two. Didn't all the costumes end up in the hands of that fan? Uh, Adrian Andrews. Yes. Yeah, there's a, a, a local BC news item on it, wasn't mm, there? Yeah, but he's, he's sadly since passed away since then. And 
Yeah, I don't think anyone really knows. Knows where the items are. If they do, please get in contact with us. A problem with a lot of film props, TV props and stuff over the years is that they decay if they're not looked after. Yeah, I I believe they were on display at the fan events that they had in the 2000s. Mm. It's a shame, but like you said, they they weren't made to last, really. No, no. Especially if it was rubber. Yeah, I mean, I've seen photos of props from things like Labyrinth and they look like nightmare fuel now because they've (laughs) decayed that much. Mm. Also, these things were never made to be exhibited. They were made no. to be Lightning Doctor and other TV shows. They're made for that show then and there, and then it either ends up being put in storage and reused in some like a historical yeah. drama, maybe, or it just gets binned, binned or yeah. reconverted into something like an ice warrior chest being turned into a reptile back. Oh, that that clamshell in Genesis. Mm. It was something else. It was a lizard. Oh, was it? Yeah, that's a separate thing. Was it still in that sequence, or was it using another story? Uh, it was Genesis. Just, just his rejected mutations. Mm. Um, one of my favourite examples of reusing props and costumes comes from the Doctor Who story Earthshot from 1982. We had human troopers' helmets that were reused in the Trial of the Time Lord in 1986. They were reused in Delta and Bannerman in 1987, and then they were also reused again. As prison guard helmets in Red Dwarf Eight, so yeah. they've had quite a life. Those helmets. They they weren't thinking back then that people care no. in the future to want to actually see these things. They didn't think about things like exhibitions in the same way. No. There was a minor exhibition for Doctor Who in the John Pertwee in the Science Museum, but I don't know. I don't think they weren't quite as on the ball as they are now. Of course, it was just made to be shown once and yeah. then maybe sold abroad or repeated once, mm. and, and that was it. Move on. It was wasn't considered uh, worth preserving. Even when tripods was made, uh, things like home video was still quite a rarity. It's still quite a luxury, expensive. £40 for a tape mm. of a, of a programme, yeah. Yeah, it makes me wonder what they would have thought back then if they'd have expected people to still to be watching and talking about tripods now. Probably not. No, I don't Especially think... if they were thinking it's just going to be a, something, a children's show. Mm. Okay, so let's move on to another interview clip. So we're going to listen to a bit more of Robin Hayter talking about things like the special effects and budgets. As the only member of the main cast that stayed in show business, what do you think that uh, that's changed between television production in the mid-80s to now? Well, well, it's a good question because I, mean, I'm, I do direct now, but I, I've directed my own independent film uh, documentary uh, this year. Uh, Amazon Prime, and that was looking back at a, a play that I was in in, in the 80s. So that's a different sort of thing. But but television-wise, uh, I think that my understanding is there's no rehearsal. That used to be when we were BBC the Tribals, you know, we used to get uh, a lot of rehearsal time. It used to be a place called North Acton. All the actors know it used to be called the North Acton Hilton. Yeah. <laughs> It was in North Acton and basically you had a subsidised canteen. Uh, you went along uh, with your sort of effectively like a theatre company. You turned up, you know, mm. and you had a show and you worked on it. And they used to do what they call blocking, where they just sort of bit of tape on the floor. So where you're here, you're here. And you used to work through the scenes together. And we used to get paid for rehearsals, a couple of weeks rehearsal before we did each episode. And then at the end of the rehearsals, you, you get the tech team, the, the, the camera team and the effects people and the director, they would come in and they would watch you doing your work and they'd kind of plot it around you. I mean, you know, obviously the director knew the moves yeah. that he wanted beforehand. 
but we would work like this as a team and then it was sort of like all being put in the pot you know yeah and then you go into the studio and you were kind of ready to roll really you'd have a kind of you'd, you'd have a sense and and as actors that was very important for us because you kind of you you were working together and this stuff was building you know so that was great but that's all gone now Except, you know, you get the old production, I think. I think years later, I mean, I heard that, um, I think it was the guy um, from Only Falls and Horses, what's his name, David Jason, who did yeah. Frost. Somebody told me, I never did a Frost, but somebody told me that he insisted on rehearsals, uh-huh. even when it was into the 90s or whenever. Mm-hmm. Even when other people were going, oh, we can't afford that, he would say, no, we have to have rehearsals. And, uh, of course, the, the end result, fantastic, some fantastic work there. That's what I was told, that he insisted on it. Uh, and I know that if I had the chance, which I haven't had to direct Terry, but I, I, would, well, I would prefer that. I think it's important if you can. And then films, it's a similar thing these days. I mean, you just learn it all at home and you sort of turn up and you, yeah. you do it. You know. <laughs> but, again, you, you do hear the occasional thing with filmmakers say, Actually, yeah. I had some rehearsal, you know, and very grateful yeah. we are too. Uh, I think the closest you get now is a cast uh, doing a table read. I did a table read only a few weeks ago. Uh, uh, it's called 11 Years Down the River, and uh, it's about the Marchioness Inquiry. There was, there was a boat that went down in London, of, of people on the Marchioness in London. It was a pleasure boat. In, I think it was the 90s. And, uh, a lot I think people, I remember that. A lot of people died, sadly. And there was an inquiry of it 10 years later, in, uh, yeah. which uh, I think John Prescott from the Labour Party eventually said, well, we should have an inquiry. There weren't all the things that are in place now for safety on the River Thames. So basically a disco boat. Yeah. People just having a good time. Were hit by a dredger on the Thames and went, it sunk. Anyway, I'm part of a, uh, there's a group I sometimes get involved with called the Outcast Creative who are actors in London who mm. try and keep like what they describe it as gym sort of actors gymnastics and they kind of practice doing stuff online and that and I was invited to be part of that recently so I did a table read and I played a QC and I played uh, also the captain of the dredger that went into the Marchioness but that was only a couple of weeks ago but it's on yeah. YouTube it's called 11 years down the river yeah actually I saw a clip of that in your show reel that oh yes it is in so that's what that was the table reader. Because I, I've, I'm a died in the wall Doctor Who fan. I can forgive dodgy effects. I can forgive wooden acting or, or whatever, just because it's about the ideas about what Ooh, you're acting. watching. <laughs> not Ooh, from acting. you. Not, not from you. <laughs> I read somewhere. Someone said, "Oh, Robin Haters from the school of uh, uh, German uh, playing Germans, we shout a lot." Bloody cheek. <laughs> But what people don't realise is the script told me that I yeah. that the characters should start off to be, you know, seemingly yeah. cold and all that. It's only gradually you start to see yeah. his humanity come through. Exactly. That's how I felt when I watched it as a child. I, I didn't like Fritz that much either. You get to sort of cheer him on as well and you want him to succeed as, as much as Will does. Yeah, it's written that way. It's written that way and it's written to... You know, it's this whole thing about efficient efficiency and all that. You know, That's the joke, efficient. isn't it? Yeah. German efficiency. Kind of a stereotype, kind of cold, efficient German. Mm. 
Mm. But then he says later, I was doing that in order to not seem as if I was, you know, on your side or whatever. Yeah. yeah it's also a sort of calculated thing. Well, that's sort of all written up in it. So I had no problem with any of that at all, I don't think. I, well, obviously, most actors say that they like the character they're playing. They have to, whatever. <laughs> when you were taken up into the tripod, tentacle coming out of the tripod, were you scared of heights? Did, did, did you uh, stay up there for long? Much later. I was a window cleaner in London for a while, <laughs> and I froze up a ladder three floors up in Chelsea oh. in the 90s. <laughs> well, that's another story. But um, no, at that time it wasn't at all. It was a crane and it yeah. picked you up, it pulled you up. And uh, no, it was all cool. I don't yeah. remember. There wasn't a problem, I don't think, at all. Speaking of tripods, you were interacting with the full size tripod legs in some scenes, weren't you? How did that feel? When a leg comes by. Yeah. Is that that thing you mean? Yeah. Was that intimidating? Oh, by a tree. By a tree, and they're up there like that. Well, it's, uh, it, it's back to that uh, equivalent today stuff with the green screen and stuff. Mm. You know, you're, you're kind of, it's, it's acting, isn't it? So, yeah. It, it's yeah. quite good, though, they put a physical element into it. Yeah, yeah. Years later, when we had that excursion to Wurton or whatever, mm. even though I wasn't in the first series, I went along to an excursion to Wurton. Yeah. Somehow they got hold of a leg or something. They got hold of a leg. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah, I've seen the leg. Yeah. So, <laughs> no, it was fine. No, no, it was all acting, I'm afraid. <laughs> That's fascinating. And we'll be listening to more of Robin Hayter later. You mentioned that before, John, about the, uh, what is it, the fan gatherings, having a hold of a tripod's leg? Uh, I didn't know about his tripod's leg. I know that they went to the location of Will and Henry's village. Yeah, Wurton. And and went round. It's called Friday Street, the name of the place. Yes. Wurton's a fictional name for it. Mm. But yeah, they had a barbecue there. And as you said, Robin was there and Jim was there as well. But yeah, I didn't know they had a tripod leg. I know <laughs> I know that they had some props and costumes, probably Adrian Andrews at an event yep. they had in Brighton, a convention type event. I wonder how they store the leg. Where, where would it be kept? Because Adrian Andrews mm. had the costumes in, yep. in, in zip bags. Where was he keeping the leg? <laughs> how do you transport it? <laughs> it was mm. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But it's a nice story. Uh, Robin was just talking about how Fritz was written and how he was written to gradually change and become more likeable over the course of the series. Yeah, it was good, that. It it was deliberate. He played it well. Mm, yeah, he played it very well. You really hate him to begin with. Yeah, you will be and, up the wrong way. Yeah. And then, and especially yeah. on, on the barge. Yeah, it's just so frustrating. Do you know, even when they're at the games... Well, like... even on the way, because he was being difficult with them, wasn't yeah. they? Going, we need to keep going. Well, that's they're it. stupid for playing in the river. But that's I'll it. But, but he well. literally says yeah. that again. So, like, literally episode four, you know, Will and Bean Paul are flirty-flirty with the girls, because <laughs> why not? Um, A bit more than flirting. <laughs> but Fritz just goes... You are very stupid. And you just mm. think, oh, yeah, Fritz, just... <sighs> the boys. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're just being yeah. boys. But, yeah, and then later on, yeah, you, you, you grow to, to like him. Yeah, and, I mean, the way Fritz is very practical and efficient. Because, like, in the book, 
he's the one who's was thinking and planning and finding out stuff, whereas Will isn't. But I do like in the TV series how they bring in the character Pierre, who's another Freeman who infiltrated the city, and he's already found out stuff, and he passes that on to Fritz, like the way to escape from the city. So it's not all on Fritz, and so maybe yeah. it's a bit more realistic because Pierre's been long enough to have accumulated this info to pass on. Uh, and it also shows that the previous attempts to infiltrate the city weren't in a, vain. A, a complete waste. Yes. Yeah, they did come to fruition in the end. And wasn't it Pierre who mentioned, uh, I guess, for, a bit of foreshadowing, Pierre mentions yeah. it's a teetotal city, there's no alcohol anywhere. Maybe that's why the pink part was introduced, to say there's no alcohol, by showing a bar slash nightclub yeah. that, that has no, no alcohol. alcohol. To foreshadow what they find out in Pool of Fire. Yeah, read the book. And it's interesting, Robin, talking about uh, changes in TV production, about how they don't do rehearsals anymore for TV no. shows, whereas they definitely did back in the, like the 50s, 60s, 70s, I'm assuming 80s. Probably up until the late 80s, early 90s, mm. it was replaced with Rehearse Record. I mean, I know The Bill was infamously one of the first series to do that later on. But yeah, I suppose it's a matter of cost. If you're hiring your actors for an extra week to spend rehearsing, then you're going to save money because you're only hiring them for a week filming instead. But then mm. you, you might not get as good a performance because they haven't had a chance to work through it all as a group. It's all done separately. And, it, and and like you said, it's very rare that a production will have rehearsals in advance now for films or television. It'll just take one so-called maverick producer or director to, to want to do rehearsals. It is a loss. But obviously, it's that thing of it's all come down to saving money, hasn't it? Yeah. It's also a question of, as the viewer, do you notice? You might get a better performance or an ensemble if they had rehearsed, but you'll never know. Yeah, you'll never know. But is that testament to the actors as well, saying that, actually? They are quite good at getting on with it. Well, I guess rehearsals together would have been a hand... What is the word? Holdover from the days of theatre acting, because in the 50s and 60s, a lot of TV actors came from theatre backgrounds and they're still thinking of tv in sort of theatre terms yeah they were like play of the day and all there were a lot of shows that were very much seen as plays so Mm. they would have spent a week's rehearsal or or whatever Mm. yeah uh when they got into the studio as well they'd spend a day doing camera rehearsals with some costume and makeup as well testing and then they'd have like a three-hour block then to record and and due to the union rules at the time 10 o'clock that's it end Mm. of recording and if they wanted to go over by 15 minutes, every person from the cast down to like the electricians had to all agree to do that extra time, otherwise they couldn't continue. It sounds a little insane looking at it from a modern perspective, mm. but you know that's how it was and it worked. But obviously, again, it's probably down to cost, isn't it? Mm. It's changed like the rehearsal period. That Quantel article in Doc 2 magazine, it talks about unions at the time and how they decided the people who should be using Quantel are those who were, uh, I think it was matte, matte screen painters. Oh, 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 oh matte background mm. uh, painters, yeah. And it, it seems just so rigid about who can do what and how long for. And I know unions are a good idea, but I think when it interferes in creative work like that, because, I mean, there was something with Blake 7... They'd built a prop spaceship outside of a BBC and there was some argument about whose job it was to take it into the studio. Was it a prop or, or was it set? And I think they had to saw the wings off as well because it was too wide to get through the studio doors. But, you know, it's just little things like that. It's like, mm. you, you know, if, if somebody who's not part of the props department are not allowed or, to or, or set, they're not allowed to pick something up because that's not their job. You know, the unions in some ways got it a little bit 
Well, it's not just Wrong the with demarcation. It's so. not just the unions, though. It was the BBC itself, because like in that recent docudrama oh, yeah. about Delia Derbyshire, basically radiophonics was definitely not considered music. the music department, and they were very rigid in saying you oh, are yeah. not allowed to call yourself musicians and oh, this kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah, like when she she did the theme music. Yeah, she wasn't given the credit. It was only Ron Grainer and the department because. He was a composer, and it was the department who realised that theme. Yeah. And he he always said that it should have been it, she should have got a co credit with him for it. Yeah, I know there was other weird demarcations they had back, like in the seventies, between was it visual effects and video effects or something yeah. like that. But it wasn't just unions. No, it was the way the BBC was set up. Mm. Well, speaking of the BBC, uh, Richard Bates in his interview talks a bit about how the tripods wasn't appreciated. So I think let's should we listen to a bit more of Richard Bates? Yes, let's. What was the the most rewarding aspect of, of making the series? The gift of Ken's music, because I do think it was wonderfully enhancing, a huge, huge plus for the quality of of the series. And just pulling off those two shots I've described, I mean, I'm not technically minded, but I knew what a huge achievement that was for the technical people. I mean, they were they were absolute cock-a-hoop when they got that right. And so yeah. was I for them. It's those things that still stick in my mind. Groundbreaking, uh, for which, of course, we got no thanks whatsoever. Uh, John Christopher, Sam Ude, he wasn't really interested in telling a science fiction story with it. He was telling an adventure story that was future is the past, you know, with them leading this kind of feudal lifestyle, weren't they? But- yes, it, it was interesting, you know, to, to have that opportunity to give some thought as to what would happen to our society if somebody did arrive from space and take yeah. over the world and and dominate the human race, what would we do? What would our reaction be? So, yes, it's an intriguing storyline. I mean, it's been done before and since, but yeah. it's, it's always yeah. an interesting one. Uh, and we face the same problem with, with climate change now. If we don't get climate change right and the, the world starts to fall apart and we can't feed the, pop, the world's population, well, then we'll have to start taking much more difficult decisions like how do we control the Earth's population? Do we stop people, increase their populations? Or do we, like the Chinese did, you know, some years ago, saying mm. you can only have one child in a family? I mean, yeah. those big decisions are probably not very far down the road if we if we don't sort out climate change. Uh, so you were saying earlier, Richard, about saying you, you know, the show was breaking new ground and you don't feel like it was very appreciated at the time because... People say things like, and I don't agree with it because I've seen people say, oh, it had rubbish special effects, but it didn't. Like you said, it was very cutting edge for the time. It was. I mean, I don't think, certainly nobody in this country was attempting to do video effects as we were. There probably were people in America were beginning to move to video. I mean, certainly now. I mean, I think Star Wars was shot largely on film, the video effects. I think I'm right. But anybody doing Star Wars now, I mean, even I presume the latest Star Wars films are all shot on video now. Aren't they? They're, they're, all, they're all digital cameras now. Yeah, they're all digital cameras. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think anybody was getting close to what we were doing. There were there were some commercials being made. There, there was a company in Soho in London who were beginning to push ahead 
uh, with video effects for commercials, uh, where people had a lot of money to spend, of course, you know, commercials, they'll spend, you know, a million million pounds on a on a 30 second commercial. I couldn't spend a million pounds on a 13 part series. <laughs> so uh, uh, there were people who were sort of tinkering with bits and pieces, but no, nobody was doing what we were doing, which is provide video effects for a long running series. And of course, that begs one of the questions to which I don't know the answer. You, you could probably judge better than I. Were we right to make 13 episodes from each book? Would we have been better off making six or seven episodes? I mean, that begins to be more obvious, I think, where the boys get into the White Mountains and stay with the girls in the vineyard. I'm very, very aware that we've sort of run out of good tension there, although the tripods are around it does get to be a rather soft storyline were we right to to do that number of episodes i mean that's what the bbc wanted they wanted to fill that autumn yeah. schedule with 13 episodes yeah. so i also wondered with the 13 episodes whether they had an eye on the american market because 13 was half an american tv season back then well remember 13 is also a quarter of the 52 weeks of the year. Of so in those days, we always did everything in 13s. Mm. And when I started, I mean, back to the Avengers, yes. 1962, 13 episodes, followed by 13 episodes. Uh, Public Eye, 13 episodes. Really remember Red You won't remember Red Cap. Which I, is, I know of it. You know of Red Cap with John Thor. Yeah. I was script, script editor on that, 13 episodes. I mean, I did you know, for the early part of my producing career, nothing but 13 episodes every year, 13 hours a year. So it's only really sitcoms that did the six episodes. Then. Yeah, they tended to. So your dramas like Secret Army and other things were about 12 or 13 episodes. 13 episodes every time, upstairs, downstairs, 13 episodes every time. We, I mean, we seem to have lost that at the moment. Um, we've got a lot of six and seven part thrillers on Sunday evenings and midweek yeah. and so on and so forth. And the soaps, of course, take a huge amount of the drama budget. Yeah. Um, going back to earlier times, you see, the, the only soap was um, Coronation Street. All other drama was 13 parts. And then the BBC recklessly uh, decided they want to have their own soap, and so they came up with EastEnders. And then from there, you move on to casualty and so on and so forth. And slowly, the drama budget had been shifted away from other series like Tenko that I was involved with, you know, which a midweek drama yeah. series, 13 episodes. And those sorts of series have largely disappeared now out of, out of the schedule. Yeah. So, so to, to that extent, the, the, you know, the drama scene has changed. I mean, it's over a long period of time. Admittedly, it's 50 years. But it, but it has, I've been able to watch that change through my career. interesting interview clip there uh, it looks like you've got something you want to say dan yeah with him saying like the the midweek 13 episodes uh, for a series is kind of gone i don't i don't i do what do i do understand what he's saying and it has changed and shifted but i don't agree in the same way like i don't think it's 
gone completely. Think of things like on BBC, right? Think of things like Father Brown. That's a, what, 10 or 15 episode yeah. um, series. They will put them on for two weeks so or three weeks from Monday to Friday, yeah. every day in the week. There was a period, late 90s, early 2000s, where was a glut of dramas on both ITV and BBC where they were six episodes and if it was long it'd be eight episode dramas but then towards the end of the 2000s going in the 2010s the drama series started getting a bit longer again like Waterloo Road, Shameless they started dragging on with adding more and more episodes but I suppose TV's changed a lot as well with how we live and also the fact that there's just so many things on streaming and so many people like yeah. binge watching. I think, and I'm one of those people. I prefer to binge watch something, so... I, I think that's partly it. You know, sort of Netflix, HBO kind of shape their seasons by how long they think the stories could be. Mm. Or, or they spend a budget over 10 episodes where the American traditional drama is 22 episodes now. Yeah. And so obviously they don't have the, the money of a major network... So 10 is the thing, and maybe the BBC and ITV sometimes aim for that 10 episodes because they know that they're going to sell it on to Netflix, who are That's used it. to that kind of thing. Yeah, I think as well with Netflix, it helps with, the like you say, it can be a set number of episodes. I think Richard said where he was saying about the vineyard, I enjoyed the vineyard episodes, but it's yeah. almost, it's just padding. That's what it is. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of American series, when the 22 episodes, oh, let's be honest, there are filler There's episodes. a lot. About 50% of it's filler. I, I, you'll get a good story in the mi- beginning, you'll get it right at the end, and the, and the odd things that'll keep the plot going in the middle. But there's a lot of filler in that middle. Oh, oh yeah. they never mention the big bad guys. It's like, oh, I'm going to let the Flash off for a, a week yeah. before I start trying to kill him again. Yeah. Kind it's, of thing. It, it's, or worse, we end up with episodes like Shades of Grey for Next Gen, which was basically a clips episode. Even that season was shortened, something that you managed to do, but mm. I think they did 24 for the first two seasons. But it was interesting that Richard debunked that notion that the tripods had 13 episodes per season because it was had a mind for selling to America and it wasn't to do with that at all. But That's me being cynical. But just to do with uh, it being a quarter of a year. And also, Series 2 had 12 episodes, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it did. And it was, yeah, again, so... Richard talked about how he felt like they weren't really appreciated, and I, don't, I think that's true no. with tripods. It just same with Doctor Who. Well, that's My it. There was that. BBC there was care. that. What's the word? Culture at the time in the BBC. It was shifting where they were almost ashamed of sci-fi, which oh, I just don't. By it. That actually also goes back to what Richard Bates says in an earlier mm. clip, which I think we used in the previous episode. Yeah. Where he says that they thought sci-fi was a dirty word, almost. Mm. Oh, 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 definitely. Star yeah. Wars revived the interest mm. in in science fiction. There's very few science fiction A pictures. In the 70s, you've kind of got 2001 in 1969, and then that's it. But then Star Wars was a massive risk for the studio. Mm. You know, they almost didn't finish it. They had to argue to get a little bit of extra money to finish filming. Well, they thought it was going to be a failure. They thought it was going to... People would yeah. laugh at the cast saying, oh, this isn't... Why are you doing that? It's going to flop. Oh, and, and they sacked the executive that greenlit the film as well. Yeah. So by the time it was a success, he'd it, it, it moved on to another job because yeah. they'd sacked him. Yeah. You know... But but again, it's people that don't get sci-fi. I think sci-fi only appeals if it's lasers and spaceships, which it isn't. Yeah, sci-fi is a much broader genre than that because some people reduce sci-fi down to action scenes running around corridors and narrow it down to Terminator and Alien and that's about it. It's about ideas and yeah, how, ideas how technology and in... or society can yeah. change people or affect them. But for people that don't like it, they think that's it. And so that was used as a stick to beat Doctor Who in the 80s, saying it's got to compete with Star Wars. No, it fucking hasn't. <laughs> I must admit... Sorry, not bitter. I must admit, as somebody who has gone on record to say I don't really do sci-fi, 
I'm, that's an idea for a podcast. Um, I get what you're saying. It's one of those things that I will say this now. My brain immediately goes to what you've just said. It goes to like pew, pew, pew. it goes to space and firing, and you know it's action in firing. space. <laughs> and, and I was thinking firing lasers, but I decided to just cut my sentence short there. <laughs> we knew and, what you meant. And and and, and I, I, I my brain does go down that route. Now I love the tripods. It is a very sci-fi thing. Yes, I do love red dwarf. I go, I like that because it's the comedy. It shows how variable and sci-fi is. That's it. And I think for me, if you just said I like sci-fi, I, I definitely shy away and go, no, no, I don't, no, I don't. Because I've never seen, I don't really watch it, I've not seen it. So okay. I can't say, oh, I like sci-fi because then people start talking about all the things, like you said. They'll start talking about all of Star Trek. They'll start talking about Star Wars. Star Trek. They'll, they'll start talking about, you know, Terminator and all this. And I just look at them blankly going... Yeah, okay, no, I haven't watched any of those. And it's like, well, you can't like sci-fi. So I wonder if it's a part of a fandom thing as well that stops mm. some people there from are getting into in, that. In yeah. All yes. yeah, Yes, you can they basically put people off because yeah. they behave in particular ways. And yeah, It's like you're not allowed to like that Yeah, because well, you're too young or, or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Or, or you like this version of, of, of a show, like Doctor Who. Well, Doctor Who definitely example. suffers from that with people pronouncing things like, oh... X story's good, X story sucks. But if you didn't know any Doctor Who fans when you were watching the show like I didn't, I didn't mm. know what was supposedly good and what was supposedly bad. Yeah, or, or if you're a fan of the series post-2005 but haven't watched any of the classic and you're not a real Doctor Who fan, oh, that's it's bullshit. Rubbish. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but like you said, with the, the not liking certain episodes, like I've not watched much of the like classic Doctor Who stuff, but one that I did watch and I loved is one that supposedly is hated by the community. <laughs> but I, yeah, absolutely, Paradise Towers. I absolutely adore it. Paradise Towers is yeah, such an good. amazing story. Great idea. And I just think, I don't know why people don't like it. It's It, it baffles me. But then it's the same people who baffle me who I'm going to come to a different <laughs> film franchise here, Indiana Jones, right? So I love all four, yes, four films. I do. And people who say <laughs> the fourth film doesn't exist or is crap or isn't realistic, just, I'm going to say it now, fuck off, right? Because at the end of the day, you can believe a thousand-year-old crusader is still yeah. living there yes. and that the cup of Jesus is going to save his dad. But, yeah. oh, an alien, that's too far-fetched. Or yeah. the fact that, like, in, like, uh, the second one, he pulls his that heart out of his out of him and he's yeah. still he's still beating fuck off doesn't work that way ain't gonna happen that way but everyone believes that but alien oh my god I, I can't it's gone too far now <laughs> oh, people Sorry. people no. saying him hiding in the fridge for the nuclear blast was unrealistic but they could accept them what was it falling out of a plane in a dinghy and then going down a great big waterfall which in real life yeah. would have actually killed them. oh yeah oh, honestly it pisses me off some chronic it's like shut the fuck off and enjoy it because it's fantastic Fantastic. Okay. Yes. Just, just enjoy the Indiana Jones ride that you are on. Oh yeah, Indiana Jones is pulp. It's, it was based on pulpy radio shows from the what was it thirties and, and and the thirties adventure um, serials that influenced George Lucas. Which at the time, you know, pulp it was considered trashy, wasn't it? Yeah. So it's not going to be highbrow and realistic. It's meant to be fun and the films frothy. are fun. It's action fantasy, and if you can't take yeah. the fact that it's fantasy i can say why just go go away please thank you yeah Brilliant. so going back to yeah how broad sci-fi was i mean you've got examples like sapphire and steel that's not exactly got spaceships and no lasers and all the but, stuff that people think of as sci-fi it's about atmosphere and character mm. as we said the genre can be quite broad yeah yep you calm down now i've calmed down now <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
I guess it's appropriate that Dan's ranting because we're going to listen to a... Um, you listen to a rant now. <laughs> yes, because uh, we're going to move on to a Kerry Seal now who does have quite a lot to, of interesting stuff to say. I, I heard from a friend that you once got a school class to read the White Mountains. Is that true? Oh, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't. No, no, no. We oh. never read the White Mountains. Oh. You don't really have, you don't necessarily. It's a nice story. Have, nice story. Yeah. It would have been good, wouldn't it? Oh, I always get, you know, every school, new school <laughs> I go to, John, it always goes through this phase of, you know, kids get curious about you and they start, and these days they can just look up on the internet and there I am. Yes, like, of course. Oh, Mr. Sue was, Sue was on the telly which actually gives you great cred for about a week. Yeah. <laughs> Back in 2002, there were rumours that you died. I know, isn't that weird? Internet. That is weird. Mm. Did you ever find out how those started? You know, the, what was even stranger about that is the reason that that went unchecked for some time is at that time I was doing a year's closed retreat. So uh, part of the, I got very interested in Tibetan Buddhism and in, and in that tradition there's a tradition of going and sort of going off and practicing very intensely the various Vajrayana practices in sort of closed retreat so that you're undistracted. I did, I, I, on the surface, I did the retreat, but it didn't really transform my mind much at all, actually, John. So um, oh. I'm sort of trying to find a more simple way of doing it now that actually has some long-term effect. But so, and so anyway, I was really out, I was completely out of the loop. And it was very, it was really sweet, actually, because um, there were various people that got in touch about, like um, Adrian Andrews, who was running the League of Freemen, I think, you know, sent a lovely letter yeah. to my mum. And <laughs> I was really touching. It was kind of like having your funeral before you're dead idea, you know, like you yeah. see, see what people say about you at your funeral. Yeah. And I remember an old friend of mine in Japan, who's moved to Japan, he gave a, he's a shakuhachi player, which is the uh, the Japanese bamboo flute. And he gave a memorial concert for me and all sorts of People did very sweet things, and then then they found out that I wasn't dead after all. And then they then they all wanted their presents back. <laughs> I think fun. that what had happened is somebody amazingly. I mean, you think you're named like Kerry Seal. There can't be another Kerry no. Seal. There was somebody with a with a similar surname who was a, a young German actress, and I think it was I think it was her that that died of a long illness or something. You know, it just shows you you can't believe everything you read on the internet. John. No, I, I remember it was fake news at the time. And and you know, I, I have to admit, I was I was quite upset on your behalf oh, hearing that. So so it was good news when we all heard he's alive. Yeah, I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was fine all the time. I'm guessing that's how you missed the BBC documentary about the tripods. That was broadcast around that time. BBC but, documentary. Uh, what was that? Oh, was there a BBC? There was the BBC Four back in I can't remember when it was in the 2000s, mid 2000s called The Cult Of, and we did a different science fiction programme every week. And one uh, of them, so we did Blake 7, Doom Watch, Survivors, and The Tripods was one of them. And so we spoke to Jim, Richard Bates, one of yeah. the screenwriters. Yeah, well, they didn't even, I don't, you see, I think at they this They thought point, you were I dead. Was, I thought they, they thought I was dead, or they, I think I was on that retreat. In fact, I remember now, just before that point, that yeah. someone did get in touch with me, about that and they said oh come up and meet me um mm. and for lunch and we'll discuss it and i trekked across london at great trouble and expense in the middle of a working week which for me i was a school teacher full time by then yeah. and that was a big sacrifice and i got there and they hadn't bothered to turn up for the blue <laughs> meeting so i was like well 
yeah. tell you what, forget it then. So that was the end of it. I would have been happy to have sat there and talked about the tripods, yeah. Yeah, it's just almost like, you know, Jim's the only one willing to talk. No one can well, I mean, find, I suppose find John. An, yeah, I suppose another thing about it is that it's like, it, it was a long time ago now. So it's like, it's a whole, it's another life in a way, really. Yeah, that well, must be surreal, being asked questions about something you did so long ago. It's, I mean, it's fine, but it's, it was just a <laughs> long, long time ago. You know, so many different, I, I've been several different people since then, I think. But as you can see from Facebook and stuff, there's a little core of, of Tripods fans, which yeah. I find fascinating. So do I. It's great, isn't it? There's, there's, there's a, well, you know, um, uh, a few years ago now, some really lovely folk from sort of the Germany, the German Tripods yeah. fan club. Yeah, I, I but, don't know whether you're affiliated. I certainly hope so. There's a few in, in the Facebook League of Freeman, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, so um, Sven in particular, I think, was the sort of main go-between. I know of him. Yeah, lovely guy. We, we, we all went, they, they, he invited me, Jim and I, to go and stay with them. They'd sort of got mm. a sort of a Airbnb place. And we just, and they were so lovely. Honestly, they, they looked after us and, and we, were, we were treated like sort of um, real celebrities, you know, which yeah. I mean, I don't, obviously it's been many years ago since I've done yeah. that. But everyone was really sweet. And we went to see a few locations where the programme was made. Mm. Like we went to the mill where there's a mill scene at the beginning. And um, oh, there was another place we went as well, which that was really interesting. First time I'd actually met Jim for many years as well. Uh, I was just going to ask, how did, um, I don't know if this is too personal, but just how, how lockdowns and, and COVID affected you and your... your well, I mean, as a teacher, I tell you what, I'm going to have a little bit of a rant on behalf of everybody in education right now. You know, I understand that it annoys people that teachers get long holidays, but I have to say, by the time we get to a holiday... Mm. I just like you, you should try five about five hours in front of a class of um, 150 teenagers. You just tell me you'll need a holiday. You probably need to be locked yeah. in a darkened room with with cucumbers on your eyes for at least a week. But the um, the lockdown. So whilst everybody else was scurrying away from this virus, I was having to go into school after that initial period. Yeah, and I still am. I'm still mixing with hundreds of kids, and it's like, oh well, we're worried that the kids are taking it home. Well, how about, how about, are you worried about the, no one, do you notice that the politicians never mention the teachers? They tried it's to like, demonise the teachers, didn't they? I know. I know. Oh, and that's another thing, John. What, as a consequence of all that, I was luckily spared this, but my colleagues ended up having to, to mark GCSE. So, you know, they pay the exam companies. Yes. Tens of millions of pounds to mark exams. They paid them the money. They didn't mark any exams. The teachers marked the exams. Did they get paid even a pound more? Not a sausage, not a penny. Wow. More. And it nearly killed everybody. I mean, the effect it had on my extremely resilient and hardworking colleagues was it nearly bloody killed them. Um, honestly, the strain that people were under trying to do hours and hours and hours of, and with the responsibility of these kids that they knew mm. to do them justice in these, in these GC. I mean, my God, I'm so glad that guy got the sack what was his name gavin williamson was it yeah christ what an idiot anyway that's a bit of a political rant on behalf of teachers everywhere <laughs> that was a fantastic clip kerry seal i i just have to applaud him for his rant yeah a well, lover of rants it was a great rant <laughs> we agree with it. 
everything Kerry said. Because mm. my children's school age are 11 and 13 at primary and high school. And they did remote learning when the schools were closed during the first lockdown in the UK. And their teachers were really good. They organised teams lessons or they dropped off printouts and all kinds of things for my children and hats off to them. Mm. Especially for those that were still going into school and, and are now. They risk as much as the children catching COVID. Yeah, I, I worked the entirety of it. And, and, and you, of course, being in a hospital But I wear every PPE day. every day. I wear a mask every day. Oh. I wear, you know, goggles. If I need to go into a patient with COVID, I suit the hell up. But these people, they were going in as teachers, you know, and they, like I say, they're not even really getting anything other than, a, what, their own maybe material mask at, at best? At yeah. my daughter's primary school, they wear the plastic face shield. Yeah. Uh, I've not seen them wearing a mask, but they wear the face shields in the classroom and when they bring them to the school gate at the end yeah. of the day. My son's high school, they've been wearing face masks before it was recommended. Anyway, we're diverting a bit. Party political broadcast over. Yes. <laughs> Before we move on, what Kerry was just saying about Coulter Tripods, his experience there, that was, well, that quite frankly sucked. Yeah, um, I think even Robin was contacted about that yes, as well. Uh, that being in Sorry, covering spoilers. that in a few... Yeah, spoilers. Yeah, that just sucks that he was messed around like that, making yeah. that effort to go down to London and... Exactly, and, 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 then and no they one... didn't turn up. Yeah. Especially when he's working as a teacher. Exactly. Midweek. I mean, come on. That was a commitment. And then they fuck him over like that. So, so yeah, that, that then perpetuated the thing that only um, Jim was willing to talk about the tripods. Everyone had, had moved on and, and it's like, that's it. I've given up acting. Don't want to talk about it. Yeah. I don't know what was going on behind the scenes of the cult of tripods, but... It was a low-budget programme. But at the very least, they should have just dropped him an email or something and just said, sorry, it's cancelled. Yeah, sorry. Don't waste your time. Sorry we can't afford to do any more interviews. Yeah. Well, that's that's us assuming that was the case. I think it it was, because they couldn't interview everybody that they wanted. Mm. We don't know what the situation was with that production of The Cult of Tripods, but I guess at the very least it's polite to let people know if you're going to have to cancel something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we'll, speaking of yeah issues with COVID restrictions and personal liberty, we'll move on to. I think that links us quite neatly onto Robin's interview. So, did you watch the series when it went out? Oh yeah, yeah, of course I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm quite happy to watch my stuff. How did you feel about the themes of the, of the series? Were the tripods right to come and control mankind? Stop us being self-destructive. Ah, oh, well, do you know what? I've never, ever, <laughs> I've never, ever looked at it that way. I mean, obviously, there are some themes that you think about, especially in this day and age, you know, with a mobile phone is, is essentially the same as a cap, isn't it? I mean, you know, or, or, or your, your computer. Everything you're capped because everything you do is scanned. And then there's the whole COVID thing. There's people jumping up and down saying, oh, I will not have an injection mm. or whatever. We're trying to control us and whatever. So the cat, yeah, I will not be capped is the famous phrase, you know. And in fact, I remember we had a Tripods fan club years ago. And, you know, I remember the guy who ran it, you know, he was a lovely guy and he had a load of T-shirts, you know, with I will not be capped. It, it's definitely... Something running, you know, along with 1984 and those other things. It's definitely mm. John Christopher or Sam Yeoard is who's his real name. There's definitely a theme running on it about liberty, and 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 it's it's all come up again now, isn't it? The sort yeah. of civil rights. Thing. So, and of course, the whole thing about tripods. I seem to remember from 
the little I saw of the first series, actually, I did watch a lot more of it later. Yeah. But that, but reading the books and things, but the famous scene of Ozymandias, you know, I am Ozymandias and all this kind of stuff. And the whole point is about personal liberty. So my, my long-winded answer to the question <laughs> is, well, no, I mean, you, you, your free will is very important. One of the most important things. Yeah. You have to be careful when people say we're doing things for the benefit of you. It depends, you know, because there's paranoia and so on. And I think it's up to the individual to weigh it up. Yeah. But the, the answer would be if you're capped, you don't have the chance to weigh it up because you're, you're being sort of conditioned. So I think you have to take the cap off and out, mm. then make up your mind and then put it back on or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It's a one-time only, but not removable. Yeah, what have other people said? <laughs> what did John say? <laughs> I don't think I asked that question. Yeah, I just remember the odd line, you know, from the series. Mm. You know, oh, the cap is supposed to protect from sickness, is that not so? Yeah. And all this kind of stuff, and then they're fighting about the cap. Then John says something like, what is the point of trying to save humanity if you have no humanity or something? Yeah. Which I think was used later on in Cruise of the Gods. <laughs> the famous series, yeah, which was a brilliant show, by the way. Uh, I think I it a lot of ideas for tripods for that show. But anyway, um, I digress. Uh, we need to plot our own course through life. Mm. And you need to find something that inspires you and moves you and uh, hopefully creates value. And if it's anti-value and you fight it, you, know, you should find a way to combat it. But basically, mm. we, we encourage each other to find our, our own way through life rather than sort of, you know, indoctrinate you. At the same time, you've got to be able to guide people. So it's a difficult question. Of course. But there's no morality. In my view, there's no higher power there sort of telling you what you should do. It's up to us, you know. Robin Hayter there. It makes me think of it because he's talking about benevolent authority and how, yeah. like the masters are saying, we're doing this for your own good. And it reminds me of in XCOM 2 where you got Advent aliens, basically, who was, again, saying we're going to cure you of all these diseases, come to our gene clinics, you just have to obey everything we want you to do. It's the same with V as well, in a way. When mm. when the visitors are sort of, we're going to help the US slash world governments out, but, you know, we're going to, we're going to start having checkpoints and we're going to start taking people away that, uh, like, dissidents, scientists, doctors or whatever that, that question the visitors being there. Yeah, it's tricky because these kind of arguments have been used in the last year or so by anti-COVID people saying, oh, you're sheep and you're letting the government yeah. treat you like cattle and not making your own decisions and stuff and that it's all about government control. But versus that, you've got stopping a, a pandemic, a yeah. virus spreading, but at the t beginning... We had no cure or treatment and no vaccine to mm. protect people. With lockdown and stuff, it's about thinking about not just yourself, but society and public health. And there's that tension there between public health and personal responsibility and freedom. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the which one weighs up more in that scenario. Is the personal self more important or is like the, the society more important? My personal opinion is that I, I should do things to help the society and because that's the right thing to do for me, the civilised yeah. thing to do. Mm. You know what I mean? I don't need a government to tell me to do that. I've got my own brain that tells me to do yeah. that. And I guess that's the difference here then with the tripods because, like, at one point Will says, what gives them the right? You know, what yeah. gives the masters the right to decide, well, we need to help you and look after you because you can't look after yourselves. But they don't have that choice, the capped. 
No, there is no, no choice. There's no choice to say, you know, actually, I don't want to do this. It's so happened do, for so long that. that it's it's tradition. Yeah, it's uh, just you and, get capped. And no one's going to question it anyway because yeah. they're capped. But the point is, it's expected. Children are raised to look forward to, to being capped mm. and, and becoming an adult or a grown-up and, and being like their parents. You know, and only a few will go, hang on, I don't like the idea of this. I've seen people change and not for the better. Mm. And of course, Will sees it sharply with the difference between his friend yes. Jack before and after. Yeah. Mm. His playfulness, he's become an adult and doesn't want to hang out at a den with Will anymore. He just doesn't have as much passion for, for anything beyond work. Mm. There's an issue to mention that we haven't really talked about. It's the latter part of Series 2, the very end, uh, last, what was it, last two episodes with the circus. Oh, Because yes. people in the TV series seem to have... The Caps seem to have a bit more free will because they have the Black Guard, and we've debated that before. Yeah. But they've also got things like the Pit, and of course yeah. you've got the Circus Ringmaster. Greedy. Who, who's crooked. Yeah. But he still obeys the tripod, so it's quite interesting that the people who can break the law but still be obedient to the tripods, and how much free will do they have exactly in regards to being able to commit I wonder, crime? I wondered, though, if that's one of the things because the tripods don't care. Like, the masters don't care. That's no. why, like, the ringmaster can get away with what he's doing. He's being how he is to, for his own gain. It's a personal gain. People can still be but, people, I guess. But it's how he's doing it. He, he knows he's got a lot of kids and he's going to sell them to whoever's the highest bidder to be capped. So to they're still going to be under yeah. the master's control. So mm. the end result is still the same. They're still in control. Yes. So I wonder if that's why it's a behaviour they're not really particularly bothered about because the no. end result is the same. So they're like, ah, oh, we don't care how you get about it as long as we get what we want. No. Mm. Uh, and, and and again, it's like how much of a cap affects your personality. If it takes away sort of wanting any thoughts of rebellion then fine, but you still got to have some motivation to live, otherwise you wouldn't eat or you wouldn't sleep. Mm. Well, um, no, because they're thinking they'd be eating and um, surviving for the will of, to serve the tripods. Oh, that's that's how the capital think. They think, I'm going to eat to so I can better serve the tripods. Mm. It's just a small bit that really frustrates me in episode 11. They're running away from the blackguard and they hide as... Uh, clowns. How quick did they get that makeup on looking? Oh, yeah. So perfect. I'm talking, that was like expert level makeup. Like, like I'm, I'm not being funny, but that was like superb. Then the black guards are seeing the fact that this circus is getting yeah. closed up and they're going, oh yeah, it makes sense. There's two, two lads who have been trying to chase. Oh wait, are we watching this caravan? There's two lads pushing clown makeup on. Why? They're going. Like... It was just like nobody's put a single bit of brain thought into that scene at all. It really, really annoys me. I, I liked it though how it was a chance for Will and Beanpole to recruit more, more members. People for the, oh, I enjoyed for that. That, that but, was a good aspect of it. But I hated the fact that, yeah, they got the makeup on so fucking fast. Especially Will's. <laughs> Will's was superb. And then, and then, like you said, the, the guards aren't smart enough to realise that, oh, wait a second. Why would they be putting makeup on like as if they're getting ready for a show when they're literally packing up to bugger off? I don't think black guards were chosen for their intelligence. That's a good point, Dan. I always make good points. <laughs> it's a shame we didn't get a season three because it'd be nice to have seen more of the new recruitees. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think they, they left it on a really good cliffhanger as well because it was just like, boom, boom, boom. Was it all for nothing? Yeah. Yeah. Another thought, as I just remembered, is because uh, uh, we talked about this before, John Shackley's almost alpha male acting at times for Will, the way he clutches his belt buckle with both hands <laughs> like a cowboy. And in 
when he was escaping from the city of Golden Lake, I couldn't help but notice he does the Captain Kirk double punch to the black guards to get out of the city. He's, he's using Kirk, Kirk Fu. Did you notice that, Joe? No. Yes, he's doing the double punch. I'm going to have to go back and look now. Is that because it's a boxing technique? I have it's no idea. It's just a TV idea. fighting technique, really. Fair dues. <laughs> Is it ever used in real life, that technique? Probably not. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this episode of Tripods Cast. I hope you've enjoyed listening. And remember, you can contact us with any comments and suggestions. You'll hear where you can do that at the end of the programme. I hope you'll join us next time when we talk about the cancellation of the BBC's Tripods television series and the acquisition of the Tripods film rights by the Walt Disney Company. So that's me, Rebecca Ray, Danny Ray and John Isles saying goodbye. Goodbye! Thank you for listening to Tripodscast. If you'd like to contact or comment on the show, email us at tripodscast at gmail.com, Twitter at Tripodscast, Facebook Tripodscast, Instagram Tripodscast, and Reddit r slash Tripodscast. Special thanks go to Kerry Seal, John Shackley, Robin Hater, Richard Bates, and Chris Jones. Recording and post-production by Kevin Hiley.